0: Now, I realize that in our current series in the book of Joshua, I have given you a lot of stories about generals and the army and war. It just seemed natural. So here we go again. General George Patton is seen as one of America's great military leaders in history. And during World War II, he really built his legacy. He was known for a lot of things. He was known for his military accomplishments. He was... Uh, part of the victory at the Battle at the Bulge. He was responsible for leading his troops to capture thousands of miles of enemy territory to put an end to Nazi rule in Germany. He was known for consistently producing results without heavy casualties. Some other things that he was known for included being quite direct with his soldiers. In fact, as the story goes, he used to prepare his men for war by telling them you're going to be up to your neck in blood and guts. So that earned him the nickname among his troops of Old Blood and Guts, is what they called him. But this isn't all that General Patton was known for. There were two incidents during his military service that have also become part of his legacy. During World War II, he visited military hospitals to check on wounded soldiers. And in 1943, he went to one of those hospitals, and he found a soldier being cared for who didn't seem to have any visible outward wounds. So he asked him what was wrong and why he was there. The soldier looked at General Patton and said, I guess I just can't take it. Couldn't take the fighting, couldn't take the war. Well, Patton snapped. He didn't like that answer. He called the soldier a coward, slapped him across the face. In fact, it wasn't very many days after this, he was in another military hospital and saw another soldier without any physical wounds. That soldier was being treated for battle fatigue. Patton didn't like that. So he berated that soldier, slapped him across the face too. After a while, word of all this got out. Patton was ordered to apologize. In fact, many people believe these incidents kept Patton from receiving command over the invasion of Normandy and really affected his career. Either way, these things certainly didn't help his reputation. You know, one pastor said that we are all just one simple step away from something really foolish. And it only takes one foolish thing to ruin our reputation and our lives. Sometimes it's our quick tempers that leads us to that foolish decision. And maybe you've been there in your life. You didn't slap a soldier in a military hospital, but you got so angry that you snapped. You did something without thinking. I would imagine for most of us who have been there, the results weren't good. Quick tempers often bring more pain. I mean, consequences for ourselves. Many times we're left apologizing to the very ones we were upset with at first. Being angry happens in this life. The question is, how are we supposed to deal with that anger? The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, in your anger do not sin. It doesn't say never become angry. That would probably be quite impossible for us. No, the problem is that many times our anger leads to sin, and often that comes through those snap decisions we make when we're angry, that quick temper that many of us often wrestle with. But rest assured, church, there is great hope For us in those quick tempers we deal with at times. If you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to go ahead and turn to Joshua chapter 22 this morning. Joshua 22, if you don't have a Bible with you, I encourage you to use one of those Bibles under the seats in front of you. If you'd like to use one of those, you can turn to page 187. Page 187, Joshua chapter 22. And here we're going to find a great example among the Israelites of a time when quick tempers almost resulted in terrible decisions, but praise the Lord, cooler heads prevailed. And through this example, we're going to see some important truths about controlling our quick tempers in this life. Joshua 22, beginning in verse 1, says this. Then Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And he said to them, you have done all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, and you have abode me and everything I commanded. For a long time now, to this very day, you have not deserted your fellow Israelites, but have carried out the mission the Lord your God gave you. Now that the Lord your God has given them rest, as he promised, return to your homes in the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. But, Be very careful to keep the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to keep his commands, to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Now let's pause right here in Joshua 22. Now in case you haven't been with us throughout the series in the book of Joshua, I just want to let everybody know what exactly is going on. The Lord had promised this incredible land to Israel on the western side of the Jordan River. And it was a a good land. It was fruitful, it was plentiful, it was spacious. But before they ever even stepped foot in the land, two and a half tribes came up to Moses back when Moses was leading them. Then they said, you know what, Moses? They said, we kind of like this land on the eastern side of the Jordan River we like it over here. We, we want this to be our inheritance. See, to them, the grass looked greener where they were standing than where God had for them in the promised land. So as a side note, church, let's never forget that our good shepherd will always lead us to green pastures and to quiet waters. He is the one who will refresh our souls. He knows what is best for us. These two-and-a-half tribes, they forgot that. Their decision ultimately would result in grief during their lives. But Moses granted that these two-and-a-half tribes, they could have that territory on the eastern side of the Jordan. But first they had to cross over the Jordan River with their fellow Israelites and engage in battle alongside them. He said once those tribes received their inheritance in the Promised Land, well, these two-and-a-half tribes, they could go back to their land in the east and they agreed. And for years, they fought side by side with their fellow Israelites. Now, the major battles have been won. We've seen a lot of those together. The promised land had been distributed to all the tribes, so Joshua comes, and he releases these tribes. He commends them for their service, for their obedience to God, and he commands them to continue pursuing the Lord. And then the tribe set out, and this is what happens next. Look at verse 10. It says, when they came to Goliath near the Jordan in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. And when the Israelites heard that they had built the altar on the border of Canaan at Goliath near the Jordan on the Israelite side, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. Hmm, that seems like a big deal, doesn't it? A pretty quick response. So, understand these two and a half tribes, they start to head back across the Jordan. They're often referred to as the Transjordan tribes, these two and a half, because they lived across on the other side of the Jordan. They're the Transjordan tribes. But on their way back, they set up an imposing altar. And this thing was big. So it didn't take long for the Israelites in the Promised Land to hear about it. And when they did, they got so upset that they gathered together at Shiloh to go to war against this two and a half Transjordan tribes. So why was this their response? Seems a little quick-tempered, doesn't it? Well, think about it. What were altars generally used for? They used for worship. They were used to make sacrifices, but... Israel was only supposed to worship God at the tabernacle. Well, the tabernacle was located at Shiloh in the promised land. So in the eyes of the Israelites, their trans-Jordan brothers and sisters set up an alternate place to worship God. That was spiritual rebellion of sin. And they were so upset at the idea of this improper worship. They got together and they were ready to go to war. They're willing to fight against the very ones who stood beside them when the walls of Jericho came tumbling down, to fight the very ones who would praise God with them when God delivered countless kings into their hands in the promised land. Why were they willing to do this? That's a big deal. It's because, as we will soon see, these tribes, they were passionate about obeying God. In other words, these tribes who gathered together at Shiloh, they had a good reason to be angry. They had a good reason to be angry. They were angry because they wanted to defend the worship of God. I bring this up because, if we're honest, there are some times when we get upset in our lives over petty things, right? We get upset because somebody cuts us off in traffic, and that might have been me, and I'm sorry, right? We get upset because someone says something discouraging to us. We get upset because our boss doesn't compliment us on the hard work we put into that project. We get upset because... Because we feel overlooked by others, and then in our anger, we get ready to fight those people. I mean, if not physically, at least verbally, or we tear them down behind their backs, or we shut them out of our lives, all because our ego was hurt. But if we're honest, we know that we shouldn't do those things. But then there are times, like Israel, when we get angry in the defense of good things. It's good that we're quick to defend. Our family. It's good that we're quick to defend our loved ones. It's righteous that we're quick to defend our God. But quick tempers can often result in devastating consequences, even if we're angry for good reasons. See, acting impulsively on our anger, it can lead us to do foolish and sinful things. Israel was angry for a good reason. They thought these other tribes, they were guilty of idolatry. And if this was true, they needed to take action. But if if they were wrong, well, I then mean, going to war would be a big mistake, right? So, how should we respond in moments like that? Let's see how they did. Look at verse 13. So, so the Israelites sent Phineas, son of Eleazar the priest, to the land of Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh. With him they sent ten of the chief men, one from each of the tribes of Israel, each the head of a family division among the Israelite clans. When they went to Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they said to them, The whole assembly of the Lord says, How could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now? Was not the sin of Peor enough for us? Up to this very day, we have not cleansed ourselves from that sin, even though a plague fell on the community of the Lord. Are you now turning away from the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow he'll be angry with the whole community of Israel. If the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and share the land with us. But do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourselves other than the altar of the Lord our God. When Achan, son of Zerah, was unfaithful in regard to the devoted things, did not wrath come on the whole community of Israel? He was not the only one who died for his sin. Let's stop right here and really understand what these tribes are doing. This delegation that was sent to the others. Because you probably picked up on it that they were steaming mad. They were upset. Remember, they had gotten the whole army together. They were drawing up battle plans. And if they kept acting on impulse, though, they would have just moved in and pummeled these Transjordan tribes. Instead, what we find is not only did the tribes in the promised land have a good reason to be angry, but they chose a good way to go about things. And what did they do? The first thing they did was they investigated to see if they were right about all this, anyways. I mean, they went and approached the tribes. They talked to them about this. How many times have you been offended by someone for something, and then you found out later that they didn't mean anything by it or that you had misinterpreted things? That ever happened to you? I know it's happened to me. Believers, when we're offended by something, it's good to make sure that we know all the facts of what has gone on. Quick tempered responses, they're more often about our feelings than they are about the facts of what actually happened. I once had someone tell me that they had been upset with me for over a month. I had no idea. I'd seen this person a bunch. They were mad at me for over a month about something that I had done and said. I just never would have guessed that I offended that person, but I didn't know until they came and told me. Then after they did, we were able to talk about it, share both of our sides, and praise the Lord, be reconciled to one another. Now, I'm very grateful They did not lash out at me with a quick temper. But I wish that we could have communicated things to one another earlier. One of the things this delegation did is they went right away to these tribes and talked to them about this. The second thing the delegation did was they explained what was so offensive to them. Remember, they believed that these two and a half tribes were in sin. They said, how could you do this? How could you break faith? How could you rebel against God? How could you fall into sin like this? After all, these tribes have just been commended by Joshua for their faith, for their obedience. They had been with the other tribes in Israel. They'd seen the power of God and the miracles of God. You see, the building of this altar offended the other tribes. And in their eyes, it was an offense to God. The third thing this delegation did was they warned them of the consequences for sin. This wasn't a threat. This was their concern. So they gave them two examples Uh, One of the examples happened before Israel entered the promised land. It's back in the book of Numbers. Back in the book of Numbers, Israel was in a place called Peor, and many of the Israelites engaged in immorality and idolatry with a people called the Moabites. And because they did that, God sent a plague on the nation, and 24,000 Israelites died. Because of that sin, 24,000 Israelites died before the plague ended. And then they brought up this guy, Achan. Now, if you've been with us through our series in Joshua, you might recognize his name. We were introduced to him in Joshua chapter 7. His story came back when Israel defeated Jericho. And when Israel defeated Jericho, God said the Israelites weren't supposed to keep any of the plunder of the city for themselves. Oh, but Achan couldn't resist. Well, he saw some of the things in the city, and he liked them. So he took them. He kept those things, hid them away. Then we found that afterwards when Israel went to fight against Ai, the Israelites were defeated because God wasn't with them. 36 of their soldiers died. So why was this delegation bringing all these things up for the Transjordan tribes? It's because they wanted to remind them the fact that the unfaithfulness and the sin of a few often brought judgment on the whole community. This is why they were ready to go to war if they needed to. It's because they knew that if these other tribes were practicing idolatry, it could result in the whole nation suffering. And they weren't going to stand for that. But praise the Lord, they didn't act on impulse and immediately go over and trample these other tribes. Now, they had a good reason to be angry, but here we find that they had a good way to go about it. And the thing that I want us to see, believers, if you forget all the other good things that these tribes did when they sent this delegation, don't forget this one. We find that the delegation sought to reconcile with these other tribes. If you forget everything else, don't forget that, that they sought reconciliation with them. They didn't want to fight their fellow Israelites. They didn't want that. No, they wanted to live in harmony with them. And we know that they wanted harmony because they said, come over here and live with us. They said, we'll give you some of our land, our inheritance. We'll give it to you. Just come over here and live with us. And I think right there, believers, there's a big key for us. When we are approached with that quick temper, when we get angry and we want to act out, we need to understand that far more important than the satisfaction of our temper is the reconciliation with others, is pointing them back to God. But this can only happen when we put our ego to the side and when we focus on God's truth and God's way and God's desires for us. Because God's truth, not our quick tempers, will change the hearts of those who do us wrong. They say, come back and be with us. Just don't rebel against God. Finally, the delegation, they gave these two and a half tribes a chance to respond. We find that in verse 22. They said this. They said, the mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows. And let Israel know. If this has been in rebellion or disobedience to the Lord, do not spare us this day. If we've built our own altar to turn away from the Lord and offer burnt offerings and grain offerings or to sacrifice fellowship offerings on it, may the Lord himself call us to account. No, we did it for fear that someday your descendants might say to ours, what do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you Reubenites and Gadites. You have no share in the Lord. So your descendants might cause ours to stop fearing the Lord. That's why we said, let us get ready and build an altar, but not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. On the contrary, it to be a witness between us and you and the generations that follow that we will worship the Lord at his sanctuary with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and fellowship offerings. Then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord. And we said, if they ever say this to us or to our descendants, we will answer, look at the replica of the Lord's altar, which our ancestors built, not for burnt offerings and sacrifices, but as a witness between us and you. Far be it from us to rebel against the Lord, And turn away from him today by building an altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings, and sacrifices. Other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. Well, that changes things, doesn't it? Hearing their explanation. Those tribes in the promised land, they had a good reason to be angry. Praise the Lord, they had a good way to go about their anger. Because after hearing the explanation, now they all had a good reason to rejoice. Now they knew that this altar wasn't about worship. It was a memorial. This was a reminder to future generations that the tribes east of the Jordan were as much a part of God's people as the tribes west of the Jordan. The chapter ends by telling us that everyone went away rejoicing. The land had rest. There was no civil war that broke out. Why was that the case? It was because even though the tribes in the promised land had a good reason to be angry, they went about it in a good way they didn't pursue a quick-tempered response. If they did, well, they would have slaughtered these well-meaning tribes. A calm response brought peace among God's people. Believers, how often do we allow our quick tempers and our anger to lead to sin in our lives? How often do we become so angry that we let our response divide us from our family, our friends, from our brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen to what Scripture tells us. Proverbs 14.29 says this. It says, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Proverbs 16.32 adds, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit. Than he who takes the city. Church, let's be followers of Jesus Christ who are slow to anger. Rather than living with quick tempers, let's be quick to investigate the facts of what's happened, really understand the situation. Let's purpose to reconcile with those who have offended us. The tribes in the promised land were willing to go out of their way to reconcile by offering up their own land, they're willing to give of themselves. To live in harmony. What if if we went out of our way as God's people to reconcile with one another when quick tempers flare up? What if that's how we responded? Maybe, Maybe then there would be more unities. Maybe there would be more unity in families and in the church. More unity in our relationships with others if more believers did this. Maybe then there'd be less unnecessary pain. Maybe then there would be more love that the world would see. And maybe then people would know what it looks like when Christians pursue God alongside each other. Church reconciliation will always be greater than retaliation. Sometimes, believers, in the midst of a wrong being committed, we become impulsive. And in our quick tempers, we act out. We lash out. We need to remember that our quick tempers will rarely, rarely bring about the righteousness that God desires. So we need to ask him for patience to do what's right rather than to do what's easy or self-satisfying. The truth I would encourage you to remember this morning is that controlling our quick tempers happens by focusing on God and not on our egos. My prayer is that we would be a church of believers who strive for unity who know how to lovingly address issues and wrongs and sin through godly reconciliation. My prayer is that when we feel that quick temper, and we feel that it's too much, that we we would learn to go to God for wisdom and direction in the situation. That we would ask him for help to do that which is pure and peaceable and filled with mercy. Because through these things, through reconciliation, we'll show the world what it looks like to live a life that's truly changed by Jesus Christ. Quick tempers are tempting, believers. But we don't have to give in to them. And through the Lord's strength, we don't need to live that life. When we do, when we fall, when we fail, we can go to the Lord, trusting that he will forgive us when we repent. And then we can go seek those people out that we have wronged, seek to reconcile with them as well. Maybe that's where some of us are at this morning, or maybe you're here this morning, and the truth is Jesus Christ doesn't mean a lot to you because you've never given your life to him. He's not your savior. Ever asked him for forgiveness? You don't even really know what that's all about. And if that's true for you, we want you to know that you're glad you're here. And we want you to know before you leave what Jesus has done and how much he wants to change your life. See, the Bible says that the problem is that all of us have sinned against God. Our sin is separating us from him. But God desires to have a relationship with each and every one of us. But because of our sin, we can't have that relationship. So in his great love, God sent his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. He took our place, our punishment, the wrath we deserve. After Jesus died, he was buried, and three days later, powerfully rose from the dead. And right now, Jesus stands in heaven waiting to forgive you of all your sins, to save you from separation from God, and to give you eternal life. He wants to bring you into his family. He wants to reconcile. He wants you to be made right in his eyes. The question is, will you give your life to him? The Bible says in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And if you have never made that decision, we want you to know you can make it before you leave here today. Let's pray together. Friend, if that's true for you, if, if Jesus is not your savior, please know that no matter what you have done or where you've been, what you're going through right now, Jesus wants to forgive you. He wants to save you. He wants to be your Savior. And He's been waiting your whole life for you to come to Him in faith. If you'd like to do that, please know that you can find me during this invitation song. We can pray together. Or if you're ready right now to give your life to Christ, you can go to Him in prayer and admit to him that you're a sinner, but that you believe he died on the cross for you, that he rose from the dead. And friend, ask him to forgive you and to save you. I promise you on the authority of God's word that he will. Father, for those of us who have made this decision, I pray that you'd be with us because many times our sin nature creeps up. And in those moments that we're offended by others, we want to lash out. I want to get back at them. We don't care that it's a quick-tempered response. We do it anyways. I pray that instead in those moments, you would teach us to be still, to make sure we truly understand what's happened, to seek reconciliation instead of retaliation, to be a people who are pure and peaceable, filled with mercy and grace towards others, just as you have shown so much grace and mercy towards us. In fact, Father, I pray that when we are dealing with people who are acting in unlovable ways, that we would remember how much you care for us when we act in unlovable ways. And that we would choose to love others anyways. Father, I pray that we would be a people that please you in what we say and do. When we do act with a quick temper, when we lash out, when we do things that aren't right, help us to be quick, to run to you for forgiveness and then to go to the person we have offended. We pray that in all these things, we would show people what it looks like to live a life changed by Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.